Welcome to Bible Study. This is Len standing in for Nick, who's away for a few weeks, and I trust that you will um, stay with us as we endeavour to share the Word of God with you today. Our participants today are from the deep south, east of South Australia, is Brenton. Welcome, Brenton. Thank you, Len. It's a pleasure to be sharing God's Word again. And from a little further from the um, metropolitan area is Helen. Welcome, Helen. Thank you, Len. Welcome to everyone. And from a similar area is Ken. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Len. Good to be here. And Marek from the Adelaide Hills. Welcome, Marek. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm happy to say that the sun is out and shining. Let's <laughs> go to the Bible study. Down near the seaside is Joe. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. And it's also among the vines, the sea <laughs> and the vines. So okay. always good to be here. You've uh, got the ideal climate. Perfect. Today we're going to be talking about an everlasting covenant. You know, God has made a number of covenants with people, with nations and even the earthly environment. And a covenant is a solemn promise, usually made between two parties. Some covenants were unconditional and remained as such while both parties remained faithful to them. Other covenants were conditional. There was an if involved, like, if you are faithful, I will bless you. Then there are covenants of parity between equals, such as in business agreements. Covenants where God is involved are conditional or unconditional. And today we are studying what are known as the Abrahamic covenants. But before we launch into this study, I invite you to bow your heads with us as we pray. Thank you, Brenton. Father in heaven, we are mindful today as we seek your face in this Bible study of the words of Galatians 3, that if we are Abraham's seed, we are heirs according to the promise. We thank you for the promise that was made to Abraham those millennia ago. We thank you that that promise today is just as relevant for us and for our listeners. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us and through us as we share this wonderful message of your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. May we be lifted up, as it were, to heaven in our study today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brenton. You know, uh, like in a legal document... The names of the parties involved must be included in a covenant. What did God say to Abram, later Abraham, in Genesis 15.7, Helen? Right, Genesis 15.7 actually says here, And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Um. I believe this is not the first time God had said that, but it's a legal document. And God actually was the, the partner. 
he came to Abraham. And Abraham, of course, was the other one. There are two parties to a document, to a covenant. And here we've got God and we've got Abraham. Okay, so... Eventually, sorry, Lynn, eventually, of course, it affected his descendants. But at this stage, it was interesting, if I may just add, that Abraham was uh, to be the father of the nations, but he had no children. Yes. Um, We learned a bit about Noah too, didn't we? Mm. Mm. That God made this agreement, this covenant with these people who Mm -hmm. would actually carry out his will. Now, I want to ask you, is there any significance about God's name, which in the Hebrew is spelled Y? H-W-H, normally pronounced Yahweh, meaning the self-sufficient one or the eternal one. He did also identify himself as I am, always past, present and future. We'll look into this a little further. Ken, I know you have something to share uh, before Helen speaks. Yes, uh, the divine attributes that seem to be emphasized by this title are those of self-existence and faithfulness. They point to the Lord as the living God, the source of life, in contrast with the gods of the heathen, which had no existence apart from the imagination of their worshippers. So the name itself certainly means something of special interest and special being. All right, thank you, Ken. Helen, what did you want to say here? I just want to say it's it's interesting. The word "I am" in Hebrew is "ego imi," and um, no, in Greek, "ego imi." It's the same word that was used at the burning bush when um, Moses asked the question in Exodus, um, "Who shall I say you are?" And he said, "I am." And if you if you even take that a step further, Jesus uses the very same phrase, I am, I am who I am, you know, I will be. He was changeless. He was self-sufficient, as you mentioned, the same yesterday, today and forever. Now, the other night when we were talking about this, my wife and I uh, were just wondering how many different names do we have? And I counted up that I have about 16 different names. Um, There's my given names, my nickname, my official name. My kids call me Dad. My nephews and nieces call me Uncle. At one stage I was addressed as Sir and then sometimes addressed by my surname. And so it goes. But what about God, Joe? Uh, How many names does God have? And could you share some of these with us? Yes, Len. Um, God has many names in scripture, and I think they're reflective of his character and his majesty. Some of the ones that come to mind are like El Shaddai, which probably many people are familiar with, which means Lord God Almighty. There's El, Elion, Adonai, which is Lord Master. And, of course, we've mentioned Yahweh. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner, Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals, and Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. So clearly they do describe God's character. So I guess 
there's an important, this is just some of them. There's many more. And there's, there's a beauty in that, isn't there, in scripture? Yes. Yes. Um, different names and share different characteristics. For example, although most people call me Len, my official name is Leonard, which means as brave as a lion. And then some people call me Lenny, although I might be a lot older than them. They still refer to me that. But names uh, single out particular characteristics. Now, panel, with all these different names that we can attribute to God, how do you personally address God? Well, Len, I, I myself usually call God my Heavenly Father. And I know he has many names, but that's what I usually address him. I, I know in Matthew 23 and verse 9, it says, Call no one your father on earth. So obviously because our father is in heaven, so I always tend to think of him as my heavenly father. But the other name I do like for God for me personally is Jehovah Jireh, which is the Lord who provides. Yes. I have heard you address God as Lord God. Also, Ken. Yes, Joe. Uh, like, like Ken, I to me, God is my Father, my heavenly Father. So, I don't um, address Him in the sense of a formal address. I address Him as I would a parent, and um, that's how I see God as. I don't see Him as um, someone that needs. Although, of course, He's worthy of all these titles. My relationship is reflected in parent child as a parent child. Okay, I can see some heads nodding. It kind of worries me a little bit when there are people in the clergy who um, are addressed as father. I regard God as my heavenly father and my earthly father as father, and that's as far as it goes. But um, my personal one is my father in heaven. Any other comments here? Len, I would say uh, what I would most frequently use is my loving and gracious heavenly father. Yes. Um, because I believe the two go together and uh, it brings me into a more intimate relationship with God. Yes. As Joe said. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Mary. How do you think Abram addressed God? It's, uh, it's wonderful to reflect on that question, um, Len. If we look at uh, chapter 15 and uh, verse 2, Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? I, I know that as James Chapter 2 tells us Abraham was a friend of God. That immediately implies a very close, intimate relationship. And sometimes when I hear very long-winded prayers with such a long preamble to some great, you know, superior God up, you know, in the heavens and what have you, I never address my father that way. I never address my friend that way. It creates a certain distance. But, you know, for Abraham, he refers to the sovereign, to his Lord, as the all-powerful one. And what does he do next? 
in the very same sentence, he says, you know, what can you give me since I remain childless? Who would you approach so directly with your request, if not the one in whom you have complete trust? This is what I see here. And, you know, there's no great preamble in, in his address of God. It's a respectful term that he uses, but he places his complete trust in the all-powerful God and gets down to the very request that he wants to put to God. So I think there's a very personal relationship that is evident in that. And uh, I just love the fact that whenever Abraham um, was in a difficult situation, he always called on God, but he called on God as upon a friend. And that's reflected in, in, in all of these passages that we read. And that's the way I would love to refer to him. I oftentimes refer to him as a loving father, as, as dear Lord. Um, that's all I need to say when my heart is turned to him. Yeah. Prayer. Helen. Yeah, I just, uh, I agree totally with Marek and what he was saying about Abraham. But I'd just like to make mention that, yeah, God is my friend. He is my best friend. He is my father. But I also give him worthy and honour when I, I direct to him, God, you are also my creator, creator of the earth. You are king of kings and lord of lords. To me, that keeps the perspective. I think some people have got to the stage of bringing God down, and I, I too, Len, have heard different phrases, you know, hi, daddy, I heard one. And I thought that brings it down, yeah, very personal, <clears throat> but not for public prayers. But when people are worshipping him, I think it keeps God in perspective to know that not only is he our friend, he is more than a friend. And so when I hear people praising him that he is the creator God, it, it reminds me of how awesome God really is. And so, Marek, we get we both look at it from a different point of view. I can see that. But we both agree that God is our friend and our best friend. And that is so important. I think what makes a significant difference is when whether we look at public prayer or we look at our personal prayer with God. And uh, and no words can really portray how we truly feel about God, what's in our heart. Now, admittedly, if I am standing before a congregation, leading a congregation in prayer, the wording of that prayer will be different. When I am driving and sitting behind the steering wheel speaking to God, my conversation with God will be very different. It'll be very personal, very yes, intimate. Yes, absolutely. So depending yep. on the occasion, um, the circumstances, that will impact on the wording that is used in my prayer. I agree with you totally, Merrick, and I think I'm glad that that was clarified. You know, I think that's so important. Brenton, Joe. Uh, just going back to the context in which um, Merrick has um, shared with us, the actual chapter starts with a comment of God's where he says, do not be afraid. Now, this is very interesting because Christ often used similar terminology when he was here on earth with his disciples. What you're getting here is if you go back to chapter 14, Abraham has rescued his nephew Lot and the king of Sodom and various other kings from um, these other bandit kings. And here he is, God appears to him again. This is probably about 10 years after he's um, come to this area. 
and he still has no son, I would say that there's a sense of when he says, Lord God, what will you give me? I, I sense that he trusts God, but he's saying to himself, well, what's, what does the future hold for me? I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. And then he goes on to mention Eliezer of a, uh, Damascus. And God says, no, that's not the one uh, that will be your heir. It will be someone from your own body. Um, I sense in all of this that God is testing him. There's been a 10-year gap here since he was originally told to leave um, the land where he was and go to the place that I will show you. And um, I think God is testing him because when we get further on in our study, we'll find that there's another gap of a significant number of years. Um, in our relationship with God, as Marek says, certainly we can use different terminology, whether we're using it privately or whether we're using it publicly. But I think also it's important for us to note that the relationship that we develop with God develops more uh, on an individual basis when we're one-on-one -on -one, um, with him. And I believe he's leading Abram along slowly but surely. He's trying to increase Abram's faith in what he's, he's uh, about to do for him. And I think that in our own lives and in the lives of our listeners, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers straight away. It appears as though we have not, um, it doesn't appear as though God's abandoned us, but it just appears as though God is taking his time in answering our prayers. And I think this is not only developing faith in Abraham, but it's also developing complete trust that everything from here on, he has to place totally in God's hands. He can't do anything about any of the environmental situations he finds himself in. He just has to trust God and believe that God will do it. Not only will he do it, he will do it at the time that he knows is best. All right. Thank you. Now, Joe, you have something to add? Yes, I think it's. Uh, I think it was already mentioned that um, Abraham was a friend of God, and I thought I'd just look up that text for us, and that's in James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. I think God, I think you're absolutely right, Brenton. It's very important that that we have that personal relationship with God because yeah. that's what matters. Yeah. Uh, we could be addressing God with all these lofty titles, that, uh, but our heart could be far from him. And I think God is more interested in, in the relationship yeah. that we have with him, yeah. that we are walking with him and that we are listening and believe his word rather than treat him as a dignitary and royalty, but our hearts are joined to things that are ungodly, if you like. But I, I absolutely agree with you. But I think it's that personal relationship. And whatever you call God, whatever he means to you, whatever term you use, God is looking at the heart rather than the way we address him or the way, you know, rituals that we might go through, performances, traditions. And I think they are all nothing to God if our heart isn't with him. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Now, as we said before, names have meanings. And we have a number of people in the Bible 
other people than Abram whose names were changed. Uh, Brenton, could you mention some of these and why were those names changed? Well, I will mention them, Len. Uh, the first one is from Genesis 32:28. I'm not going to read it, um, but I will comment on it. It is the change of name for Jacob from Jacob to Israel, and the name means he wrestles with God, he prevails with God. The name Jacob meant deceiver or supplanter. So his name has been changed from one thing to another by no less than Christ himself because we believe that it was Christ that was actually wrestling with uh, Jacob during that night by the river or the brook Jabok. So one of the things, Len, before I come to the other two that really concerns me a little bit, we do not place the stress on names these days that the biblical patriarchs and prophets did. When they named their children, whether they were boys or girls, often the name had very significance to the parents, such as a characteristic that they may wanted their child to be. These days we name uh, people after film stars, after sports stars, after all sorts of things, but they don't have any real significance. But here, Jacob would have gone forth, hobbled along to meet his brother Esau, and he knew that his name had been changed to one who wrestles with God and who has prevailed. The second one that I'd like to comment on briefly is Genesis 41:45. Pharaoh changes Joseph's name to Zaphnapaneah. Now, this is an interesting one because the name actually means the God speaks that he may live. And I believe there's a reference there to the fact that the true God spoke to Joseph, who was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And as a result of that and the precautions that they were able to take during the years of plenty, they were able to provide not only for the monarch, but also for all his people and Joseph as well. So that name had some significance. The God speaks that he may live. The third one is the name Daniel which was changed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he was taken captive to uh, the name Belteshazzar means Baal's prince. Now, we know enough about Baal in the Old Testament to know that uh, that is not actually a good um, appellation to be given, but Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to change, uh, change um, Daniel's religion. So there again, it's changed from the God who judges or the God who sees me, to Baal's prince. So you can see that um, these names had a great deal of weight and significance in the, in the Old Testament land. Well, thank you for that. Now, we're actually talking about covenants, and a part of covenants is the names of people involved. And God made a number of covenants with Abram. If we look in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. The thing that I've noted here in particular, God is promising Abraham He's not just going to be a childless father. No, how can you be a childless father? It doesn't work that way. But he he was going to be, from him, would be a great nation. 
But not only that, the second part of this to me is important. He says, I will do this and I will do that. And then he says, you will be a blessing. And it seems to me that this is a vital part of the covenant. Not only is it a something that affects you, but it will affect other people in turn as we reflect the goodness of God. So let's have a look at a covenant that God made with Abram about family. Ken, would you like to share this with us? I'm going to read Genesis 15, 1 to 5 uh, in the King James Version. After these, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I go childless, and the steward of my house is Elzezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth and said, Look, now towards heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them and he said unto him so shall thy seed be now again we have this amazing thing here's Abraham looking at the sky uh, must perhaps at night time obviously and he's looking at all these zillions of stars and God is telling him that your seed is going to come forth in other words your children are going to come forth and be as the stars of heaven and I'm sure at the time, Abraham, he was a fair old age, and he thought to himself, well, this is a bit difficult to believe. But however, in verse 6, it tells us, and Abraham, he believed in the Lord, and it was counted on to him for righteousness. All right. Thank you for that, Ken. Now, another covenant that God made with Abraham was about land. Helen, would you like to share that with us? I'd like to read from Genesis 15, verse 7 in the New Living Translation. He says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, out of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. So he really called Abraham from a godless and a self-centered city of Ur to a fertile land or a fertile region called Canaan where a God-centered moral nation could be established. You know, it was very small in dimension. The land of Canaan was the focal point for most of the history of Israel, if you remember, as well as for the rise of Christianity. It was a small land given to one man, Abram, but it had a tremendous impact on the world's history. All right. And another one he made about the future. Joe, would you like to share that with us? There's a couple of verses that come to mind. Um, the future, the immediate future for Abraham was that God promised in verse 15 of chapter 15, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried at a good old age. And we know that he did. I think it was 176 or something. He did a, a, a yeah, he lived to a nice, a good old age. And then, of course, in uh, verse 18, he made on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river of the river Euphrates. 
and that encompassed the lands of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, and so forth, um, Amorites, Jebusites. These are all big names that um, we knew, we know that they came across, and um, God had given them their land. I'd like to also just mention that when He said to him, I think Ken was it that said, He said, "Look to the stars." Look to the stars, and if you are able to number them, so shall thy seed be. And that's the future, isn't it? He at that stage hadn't had even a, um, you know, um, so, yeah, it was good that he had that promise. And, of course, it comes down to us, um, those who believe, who have the faith of Abraham, he is the father of us all. And as, it written, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That's in Romans 4.16. Well worth looking up some of these texts. Yeah. You know, one of the most difficult things is waiting. And, uh, and I, I just find it so difficult to place myself in Abraham's situation. When he was 75, God promised to make him into a great nation. You know, years went by. Five, ten years went by. Twenty years went by. Twenty-five years went by. God keeps promising but there's just no evidence of the fulfillment of that promise. That makes it tough. How many of us would be willing to wait 10, 15, 20, 25 years and keep holding on onto that promise in faith that God one day will fulfill it? You know, it, it says something about Abraham, but at the same time, it, it creates this, this incredible tension inside, you, you know, Waiting and waiting and waiting and expecting, and yet nothing seems to happen. How would you feel if you introduced yourself to someone as Abraham, father of a great nation? And, uh, and people would turn around and say to you, well, you know, introduce, show me your son. You know, who are these sons? Who will be the future leaders of, of this great nation? And poor Abraham has nothing to show. You know, it's a real test of faith. Okay, well, I've been waiting for a promise to come too. I've been waiting for practically all of my life, and that's the return of Jesus Christ. So I'm not worried about it. I believe God's promises are sure. And so even if I die before he comes again, it doesn't really matter. Now, in view of the fact that God promised Abram an heir and that he would be the father of many nations and many people, how did Abram try to help God along a bit, Brenton? Well, let me read it, Helen, and then just comment on it briefly. Now, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now that the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Just a couple of uh, comments about this, Len. Firstly, Hagar probably was given to Abram by uh, the king Pharaoh because it says she was an Egyptian. Now, where would he have got an Egyptian from? And Egyptians generally weren't um, slaves. 
So it's possible that she was a personal assistant, but uh, also had the title of slave. What was being practised here was Abel's wife decided that it wasn't going to happen, as um, Marika's very eloquently commented on. It doesn't look like there's any end in sight to all of this. To be a woman in those days and be childless bore its own, shall we say, stigma. And so she suggests a course of action which is basically a surrogacy motherhood type scenario. But you find, Len, in verse 4, that immediately Abraham, or Abram as he then was, trying to help God, it's starting to come unstuck. You immediately have a tension developing within the, in the family because Hagar, now pregnant, is starting to despise her mistress who suggested this course of action to Abram in the first place. Whenever I read this chapter, I can't help but wonder what the history of humanity would have been like if God, if Abram had waited on God not took matters into his own hands. Now, Merrick, there's a covenant promise in Genesis 17, 1 to 6, and also 9 to 10. If you'd like to just share what that promise was. And my question is, did this covenant promise have any conditions? Well, let me read those uh, verses, starting with verse 1 in chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, and this is 25 years after he left Ur, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. That promise repeated again here. So Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Um, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants and you for the generation to come and be your God and the gods of your descendants after you. You know, a, a wonderful promise repeated here where God would make him very fruitful and make him the father of many nations. But then when we look at verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You know, we've looked at several different covenants, and we know in the case of uh, of the covenant with uh, with Noah, there was a, a sign of that covenant. It was the, the beautiful display in the heavens of a rainbow. Now, here, God proposes that the sign of Abraham's faithfulness to, to the covenant and all of his uh, uh, all of his children's and sons was that they were to be to be circumcised. It's kind of interesting because even till this day, in many parts of Europe, a male who has been circumcised is sometimes suspected, most times suspected of being a Jew. Uh, it's a covenant sign that was introduced way back in those days, and that 
was something that was to be a sign of obedience to that covenant. Now, admittedly, there were many good reasons why God introduced that as a sign and as a part that Abraham was to keep and be obedient to. God wanted to maintain their purity. He wanted their loyalty. He wanted their committed service. He wanted to protect them from idolatry, from evil worship, from being unfaithful by engaging in immoral activities. And so God pleaded with Abraham here to ensure that he kept his part of the uh, of the covenant. Brenton? Um, Len, as you and I were talking off air about this, um, there are a couple of interesting points that uh, Marek has raised here. First of all, God starts out by saying, walk before me and be blameless or be, uh, yes, walk, I am almighty God. First of all, God introduces himself by a new name. I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. It is now 13 years since Ishmael has been born. He's a 13-year-old lad. And I sense in here that there's something interesting going on. When you go back to some of um, Abraham's predecessors, you go back to the time of Enoch and the time of Noah, it says in both cases that they walked with God. Here, God is not telling Abraham or Abram to walk with him. He's saying, walk before me. I sense that um, there is something going on here. Because of Abram taking matters into his own hands 13 years before, I sense God is, in a sense, saying to Abram, you need to come into a closer relationship with me in order for my promise that I made to you, my covenant promise, to be fulfilled. And the word blameless means to walk uprightly. And I believe God is calling Abram to a higher level than what he's had in chapter 12, what he's had in chapter 15. Now we're moving on to chapter 17. I believe that now, as Abram fulfills these requirements, God is able to do what he'd promised all along, and that is give Sarai, who he later named Sarah, a son, which biologically was impossible. And um, I think there's a big message for us today that God brings us along step by step as we accept him, as we trust him, he leads us to a higher level. As we trust him there, he leads us to a still higher level. And I think that there's a very strong lesson for all of us there. Thank you. Now, we've uh, mentioned changing of names a little bit. The question then directly to you, Helen, is why did God change Abram's name? I believe that God was changing names to harmonise with the um, experience of these people, past um, or future. We see here he was called Abram, Father Exalted, and it was changed then to the future, what was going to be very soon, Father of Many Nations, because God knew that he would have many, many descendants. So who were these descendants, Brandon? Well, certainly they're um, both Jews and Arabs. So they include the peoples of Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Iran and Egypt. If you've travelled to any of these countries, and some of us may have, certainly uh, Lurleen and I have had the privilege to go to Egypt, to Jordan, to Iraq. Um, it's very interesting that Abraham is held in the highest possible regard in all of these countries because the Arabs descended from uh, Ishmael, 
And uh, the Jews, of course, descended from the son of promise, Isaac, through Jacob and so on down. And as, as I've said before, wouldn't it have been wonderful if, uh, if Abraham had allowed God to work it out his own way? What I sense here, Len, with this dispersion of all these different nationalities, all have descended from Abraham, I sense one thing. God's promise wasn't just for the Jews. God's promise, if you go back to chapter 16 and look at the promise that God made to Hagar, you'll realise that God intended that his blessings and his covenant be available to everybody, not just to the Jews. Unfortunately, the Jews um, cooped it up, kept it to themselves, but I believe that the Arabs and all those who descended from Abraham were all entitled, indeed privileged, to be part of God's overall covenant blessing um, that he had made with Abraham. Well, thank you. Now, Helen, God also made a covenant promise to Sarah. That's correct. In Genesis um, 17, 15 and 16, you will read about it. Um, we won't have time to go through it all, I don't think, but let me just quickly say that her name was Sarai, S-A-R-I, and it's interesting to note that um, this this was the first time, really, that she comes on the scene but there is no great difference between the word Sarai and the word Sarah, except it's easier to pronounce, in that they both meant princess. My princess was Sarai. And I thought that was interesting because the difference is my princess, Sari, which was Abraham's princess, to Sarah, a princess. And yes. when I looked at that, I thought, okay, this indicates that formerly she'd been Abraham's princess, but then later on she would be recognised as the princess or the progenitor of an entire nation. She would actually belong to her descendants as well as to Abraham. Good point. And this promise that was made to uh, Sarah was an unconditional covenant. What was Abraham's reaction when he learned of this unconditional covenant God made with Sarah. But reading verse 17, it says, Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? So here we see a complete change of attitude from Abraham from belief to unbelief. Yes, he probably... um, after all that waiting and trying to hurry God up on the business and causing Ishmael's birth, um, he must have perhaps lost his faith a little bit. Now, we have two verses talking about the faith of Abram or Abraham, and that's from Genesis fifteen six and chapter seventeen seventeen. Joe, do you have any comment here? I think that... It, it might appear to be unbelief. I think it was, I think both of them were gobsmacked. It wouldn't be fair to say just that Abraham laughed because, you know, he fell upon his face and laughed and says, shall I have, shall a child be born unto him who's a hundred? You know, and then Sarah, of course, she laughed as well. And I think they were both gobsmacked because um, this was, this would be a miracle. And I think God designed it to be a miracle because uh, there was no way that it was biologically impo- impossible, I think Brenton said, for them to have children, well, for yeah. her anyway. But here was a miracle, and I think that despite their 
unbelief, if you like, this wasn't conditional. And um, God made his uh, promise come true. And, of course, we know of Isaac. Of course, people laugh even when they're worried. They're looking at um, something that's going to be quite stressful and difficult. They laugh. Now, maybe um, Abram was not laughing because he thought it was a big joke, but because he thought, well, is this really coming true? And and he just, that was how he expressed himself. I don't really know. We don't know. Perhaps we can ask him in God's kingdom later on. But there was something very, very special. All these covenants God made with Abram and Abraham. And we can read about these in Genesis 18, 18 and 19 and 22, 18. Marek, would you like to share what this was all about? This is very, very special here. It says, starting with verse 18, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children, his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Uh, one of the most noticeable, important parts here is that all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And this very clearly points to the fact that it was through Abraham's lineage that the Messiah would come, the Savior of the world will come. And, uh, and that is a, a wonderful, wonderful promise, a wonderful blessing that, uh, that uh, is far greater than the number of children you have. You know, Abraham ended up with one son. Does that make him a great nation? Uh, absolutely not. Not as far as numbers are concerned. But what is truly great is that through Abraham, we would see the future Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, uh, come through. I think it's also important to note that, especially verse 19, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him that they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. And then we have dependent on that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. So I feel that there's a, there is a, a clause here that, you know, if Abraham hadn't commanded his children, if he did not keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment, if he hadn't left Ur, for instance, what would have become of Abraham? So there's definitely an element of following the Lord, acting on your faith and belief. Mm-hmm. Um, rather and being obedient rather than just just believing and not acting on it. Yes. And there's that responsibility as well as far as your family. Yes, that's right. Um, you can believe, but unless you obey, <clears throat> that belief is sometimes falls dead in the water. I have an analogy. Let's say a rich relative uh, says to you, I'll give you $100 million dollars. I'll put it in the bank for you, and okay, you can believe it, but if you don't do anything about it, if you don't go to the bank and draw it out, well, it doesn't do any good. So, Brenton, I know you want to say something here. I'll just just quickly, um, Len. I I agree with all the comments that have been made. Um, I've got to go back to Genesis 12, 
one of the things God said to him is, I will make your name great. Now, all through this trying experience, as Marek and Joe and others have, have presented it, all through this experience that Abram and Sarah have gone through, Abram's name, he wouldn't have been given the name Father of the Faithful had he not been through this experience. I can't help but compare that with Genesis chapter 10 and the builders of the Tower of Babel who said, we will build this tower and we will make a name for ourselves. There's a huge contrast, I believe, between the children of Abraham, that's us, those who believe God's promises and obey them, and those who are just wanting to make a name for themselves in society. And making a name for yourself seems to be paramount in a lot of people's minds these days. I, I think as I reflect on this, that um, Abram's name grew greater and greater the stronger his faith developed. And I believe the only name that's worth anything today is the name that God gives us because we are faithful to him. And we all know that when we get to heaven, we will have a new name. So I, I think that's, um, whilst it's not explicitly stated in this lesson, I think it's a very important part of it. Just very briefly, I, I'm, I'm very mindful of the fact that God acknowledged that uh, Abraham was faithful in keeping all his laws and his commandments. Now, th this is clearly well before Sinai. Uh, so, you know, it's evident that those laws were existent. And even though these early chapters are silent about the law of God, the law of God was there. Uh, it, was, it was kept faithfully by Abraham and others. You know, the other thing is in, in the very story of, of Abraham, we also have mention of Abraham paying tithe to God. Now, <laughs> when was tithe introduced? Was it introduced uh, after Sinai? It obviously was there before Sinai. So a lot of these things are indicative of the fact that God's law was clearly understood, practiced, and all of these other practices confirmed the loyalty and faithfulness of these individuals, even though the Bible doesn't go into a great detail in expounding them till after uh, the Exodus, when God had to remind his people of what his laws and what their obligations were. Yes. Agreed. Now, Brenton, Andrew, Merrick have both spoken about the importance of obedience. And both Moses and Joshua, uh, when they were giving their final words to the people, if you want to be blessed, you need to obey God. Just to say, as we have seen so far, the covenant is always a covenant of grace, of God doing for us what we would never do for ourselves. There is no exception in the covenant that he made with Abraham. In his grace, God had chosen Abraham as his instrument to assist in proclaiming the plan of salvation to the world. But God's fulfillment of his covenant promises was, however, linked to Abraham's willingness to do righteously and to obey him by faith. Without that obedience on Abraham's part, God could not use him. And I believe that would be the same today. Yes. A question. God also makes covenant with us people of this day and age. The question is, are there any benefits in being faithful to God? And how does that fit in with the title of today's study, 
the everlasting covenant. Same rules apply today as did back then, because God tells us in his word, I am the God, I change not. So the same benefits and bad points of that covenant apply to us today. All right. Helen, you wanted to say? Yeah, yeah. The everlasting covenant was from everlasting to everlasting, which includes us. And, you know, being faithful to God, we don't do it because of what we're going to get out of him. It's like the Lord said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's obedience. Why do we keep his commandments? Because we love him. And in loving him and obeying him, he has actually given us um, an assurance of being, of having that eternal life with him. He will fulfill the everlasting covenant. He will come to get us. The covenants made with Abram had a long-lasting effect and, other, and, and they were actually made with his seed, his yeah. uh, offspring as well. Yeah. And uh, if we read the book of Romans, any believer is considered the spiritual offspring of Abraham. You know, listeners, God wants to make a covenant with you. He promises that if you are faithful, if you accept Jesus' sacrifice, he will give you something way beyond the price of money, and that's eternal life. And this is the important thing here in uh, this study about Abraham and God's covenants with him. These covenants, or God makes a covenant with you he wants you in his kingdom he wants to give you everything you could ever wish for but that's eternal life we've got time for perhaps two quick take-home messages if anybody has something else you would like to share yes uh, mary we know that abraham was not a perfect man that god kept testing him facilitating the development of character And I have this nice quote from a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 129. The very trials that task our faith most severely and make it seem that God has forsaken us are to lead us closer to Christ, that we may lay all our burdens at his feet and experience the peace which he will give us in exchange. This is in the chapter discussing uh, Abraham. He brings them into positions that test their character and reveal defects and weaknesses that have been hidden from their own knowledge. Why? That we may grow and develop. And this is what we see in Abraham. He was tested. Sometimes he failed. Sometimes he came good. But in and all, God pointed out the defects, the weaknesses, so that Abraham could grow and ultimately be regarded as the father of the faithful. I believe God is calling us in this study to step outside our comfort zone. I believe that in doing that, um, by being faithful to him in everything, we will be able to see the unseen. Remember, it talks about faith being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The closer you come to the Lord, I believe the more eager you are to see the things that are not seen. So my challenge to ourselves as a panel and to our listeners is test God, put him to the test, put yourself in his hands and say, Lord, I want to be like Abram. I want to be faithful to you under all circumstances and I know that you will fulfil your covenant promises to me. I just wanted to add that I think sometimes today people looking back at these scriptures and looking back at these 
uh, great preachers and God's people think that they put something special and something different and superhuman. And the reality is, I believe, they really were no different from us. They all had the problems and flaws, and they uh, they sometimes dropped away from God and sometimes didn't believe God and had issues exactly the same as we have today. Now, we've been studying some history, I suppose, but it's not history in isolation. It's history with a modern application that God wants to make covenants with people to be faithful to him and he will reward that faithfulness. And that includes you. Now, as we uh, close today, I'll ask Helen to close with prayer. Thank you, Len. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father, for enlightening us today. Thank you that we can see your grace through these covenants that were fulfilled. Thank you, Lord, for your patience and your long-suffering. Thank you that you are the great I am, which shows us your eternal presence, the past, the present, and the future. We know are alike to you. We cannot see the future, Father, but we can through the eyes of faith and obedience, trust you to guide us in the way that we need to go. Father, I ask that you give us each one an increase of faith, um, that we can be renewed in your divine image. We can love and obey your requirements, Father. I pray, Lord, that you will increase our faith. Give us that divine enlightenment. Without help from you, we can do nothing. Help us to come in humility, Lord, Help us to come before you, to bow before you, and our awesome God, and open before you the wonderful words that you've given us. We thank you. We thank you for the promises of the future, the covenant that you have made with all of us, the everlasting covenant. Thank you that we can learn about these covenants through your word and through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Bless each one today, each one on the panel and each one who's listened. I pray that we will go forth from this renewing our covenant with you, that we will follow you, we will trust you, and that we will do all to your honour and glory and praise. Thank you. In the loving name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, panel members, for giving up your time to share this interesting study. So it's up to me to say now, well, I hope you join us again next time. And don't forget, keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.